greetings. We um, two weeks ago we had our we, we were reading the Megillah and then we had Purim last Thursday, and uh, we we did our festive reading. Were some of you here? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That was yeah. that was great. Yeah. Oh, I have. That was a, that was a night. That was a night to remember. It was. That was, great. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. So let's uh, we'll use the Megillah as a text. I, I was suggesting that we were going to read it, uh, keep reading it together. Um, but I also have an impulse to share some teachings I found with you. Hi, Laura. Hi, certainly. That's okay. I know. Hmm? Well, uh, the, don't take these home. We need them for next year. I have. Um, that one will do. That one will do. Yeah, yeah. If you have, these are the new ones that uh, we printed up. But I also, I think I want to hand out a Hasidic teaching. This is from, this is from Levi Yitzhak. The Kodusha Levi. I thought you said Lady Yitzhak. Lady Yitzhak. Yeah. Lady Yitzhak. Dream on. It is. Wow. That'll be the next generation of reading Lady It's Fuck. It'd be a good form of Lady It's Fuck? Let's go to the next one. Okay. Let's go with Lady It's Fuck. Imagine three of us would be good. Right. Lady It's Fuck. Great. Because at the end of our class two weeks ago, I mentioned to you that, and, and I said we'd pursue this this time, that um, there are two categories of holidays in traditional Judaism. There are holidays that are called Mita Oraita, which is Aramaic for from the Torah, from the book, five books of Moses, and there are the holidays called Dirabanan, that the rabbis ordained. Um, and uh, that also applies to many, many, many other aspects of Judaism. For instance, blessing over Shabbat candles is not a mitzvah that you read about in the Torah. It's a, a practice that was instituted by the rabbis. There are hundreds of things that we take as normative Judaism that were instituted by the rabbis that you don't find in the Torah. So, um, welcome. Please, you can take that seat, because yep. Bob's not here. Uh, so, <laughs> Kathy, right? Yes. Yes, this is Kathy. Um, so that's an important distinction. And the distinction when it comes to holidays is that holidays that were ordained in the Torah are called, in Yiddish, yantuf, right? They're holy days. And the Torah instructs us that you shall not work on those days, 
right? And those are the main holy day, the oldest holy days. There's Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shemini Atzeret, which comes at the end of Sukkot, and then Passover and Shavuot. Those are the, that's Yantif. But Hanukkah and Purim aren't quite Yantif. You do, you do the ritual, but there's no special synagogue service, per se. There's uh, uh, no work stoppage, right? You don't, ha- you don't take eight days off in Hanukkah. And even though Purim becomes a de facto day off, stores don't close. and uh, So that's the first important distinction. But what the rabbis are really interested in is, so, so first of all, that becomes an object lesson in Judaism as an evolving tradition, right? Uh, because the other, uh, the other um, uh, holy day that's not from the Torah that the rabbis ordain is Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, that commemorates what happened in, when the temple was destroyed. That's, uh, and, and, and so um, Tisha B'Av is also a day when we're supposed to fast, but it's not a day when you're supposed to stop working. Right? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure many observant Jews don't go to work on Tisha B'Av, but it's not a requirement. So uh, uh, the Simcha Torah, which is, comes at the end of Sukkot, doesn't come into play as a Jewish holiday until about the 10th century, when there's a Torah tradition to rejoice over, right? Uh, so uh, Simcha Torah also doesn't have the typical restrictions of um, the uh, holy days from the Torah. And then in contemporary times, uh, and also uh, Tu B'Shvat, right? That's not, nothing about, nothing about Tu B'Shvat in the Torah. That's a rabbinic day. In modern times, we have um, instituted with the founding of Israel, Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, and Yom HaAtzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day. These are now getting to be pretty normative in the Jewish world. Time will tell. Like, I mean time like 300 years from now. Will tell whether they made it into the fixed Jewish calendar, right? Um, it's all a very slow and organic process of what, what remains and what falls away. When we read in the Talmud about other days that were celebrated, Really, they celebrate it. You read about extra, there's days that we're now trying to revive a little bit. Like the Talmud is really clear about a day called Tuba Av, the full moon of Av, when the girls would dress, the maidens would dress up in white and go out to the fields. And uh, it was, this, it was, a, it was a, a mating holiday. Um, and that, that disappeared. So, um, Does that happen? Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Okay, so all of that's the context of, uh, of an, a, an, an emerging tradition. So, um, the distinction, one of the main distinctions the rabbis make about the biblically ordained holidays and Purim and Hanukkah is that the biblically ordained holidays all celebrate supernatural miracles when the laws of nature were suspended for 
uh, God's intervention in history, right? Whether it's the Red Sea parting or the plagues on Passover or on Shavuot, the mountain, God speaking from the top of, the, of Mount Sinai to everybody, or on Sukkot, um, uh, the, the cloud of the divine presence protecting us in our shelters in the wilderness. So for the rabbis, they think of those as miracles that were uh, supernatural. But that Hanukkah and Purim stories are where we celebrate the presence of miracles that occur within the natural order of things. And that, in a way, those miracles are, um, are <coughs> even more worth celebrating. Well, let's read what Levi Yitzchak says. It's kind of long. So who's Levi Yitzchak? He's an uh, early 19th century Hasidic, um, uh, Hasidic master. And so the one I have here is a Hanukkah teaching because he puts Hanukkah and Purim together. But then I have a Purim teaching I want to show you too. <clears throat> and it's a little long, <clears throat> but let's dive in. The Talmud teaches that the commandment of lighting candles should be performed between sunset and the time when feet disappear from the marketplace. <laughs> Isn't that a nice, uh, a nice way of saying it? He's going to play with that later. <clears throat> know that the miracles our creator has performed for us are divisible into three categories. There are hidden miracles and revealed ones. The revealed miracle, like those that took place for our ancestors in Egypt, include the ten plagues and the splitting of the Red Sea, Reed Sea, involved a change in the natural order. Everybody witnessed these miracles. But then there are hidden miracles, like those that took place in the days of Mordechai and Esther. Things that appeared natural. You know, first the king raised up Haman. Then because he loved his wife, he had his friend killed for her sake. <laughs> so too, the Hanukkah miracle, as mentioned in the Al-Hanisim prayer, which is the prayer that gets inserted into the liturgy on Hanukkah uh, for these miracles. He handed over the many to the few, the defiled to the holy. It's a hidden miracle. It came about partly through battle. Same as the story of Judith, which is a famous Hanukkah story about Hanukkah that's not in the Bible, but is in the literature that was preserved from that post-biblical period. These were really miracles, not natural occurrences, but they happened in a secret way. This was noted by Rabbi Loh of Prague. Rabbi Loh of Prague is the famous Judah Loh of Prague who all the stories about creating a golem are written about. Um, who said that the miracle of Hanukkah came about partly through natural means. Our teacher, Reb Dov Baer, taught that the revealed miracle is called day and the hidden miracle, like that of Purim and Hanukkah, is called night. It is something that is not known to all like the night in which not everyone can see. So here's what I want to say. Obviously, you know me well enough to know that I don't think that I don't uh, believe literally in supernatural miracles that occur in the Bible, right? I treat them as sacred myth. So this is not a category that's literally important to me. 
did did you you know whether whether the natural order was subverted and changed or not? Um, what's important to me is where Rabbi, uh, where Levi Yitzchak's going to go with this, which is that there are miracles which are obvious to everybody. Then there are the miracles that you have to be ready to see and notice just in the natural order of things. Uh, so, and the next extension of that in this teaching, what he, where he's going with it, is that the truth of the matter is everything's a miracle. So, uh, don't, so the category of miracle is that we exist, right? And so that's why I like this teaching. Uh, so let's go on a little bit. Yeah. In, in the battle of uh, Joshua, and the, is that a midrash that the sun stayed still to make the battle? One of the stories of Joshua is that Joshua said, sun, stand still. And that's a midrash. It's not no, a, it's in the book of Joshua. Oh, it isn't. So that's a miracle that happened. It is a miracle that happened in the book of Joshua. You're we right. We don't celebrate it, though. No. Okay. Right, there's a lot of other miracles in the Torah too. But for the rabbinic mind, miracles and prophecy cease at the time that the Bible is completed. And they live in a time for them where miracles and prophecy are not self-evident. That God isn't speaking to us from the top of the mountain. And the Torah is our mediator for God's voice, right? That, that's how they understand their reality. But um, they also understand that, that the world is still an astonishing place. But they can't speak in terms of um, supernatural miracles everywhere. That's, that's for the time of the Bible. Um, the Bible is the Tanakh. That, well, Purim is on this cusp because the so we're really talking about the five books of Moses, okay. but Joshua, you know, but they're let's just say they're not being strict, okay? <laughs> they have a concept that God speaks to us in a different way now than in the time of the Bible. God reveals God's self. Um, now he says the hidden miracles may be divided into two categories. The first includes Purim, when the cause of causes himself brought about things about brought things about without any activity on the part of those below. Well, wait a minute, Levi Yitzchak. I mean, Esther risks her life to to go. You know, so well, I don't. Mordecai risks Esther's life. Well, Mordecai has it. Esther has a choice. No, no, no. It's he when sort of pushes her around. He says, "Look, if you don't go in, you have a chance to save our people." She's already in the palace. Right. But it's Esther, Mordechai says to Esther, if you don't go to the king and beg for, and Esther, we're done. And Esther says, okay, if I die, I die. And she goes and does it. I think she's the hero there. Well, she resists at first. I thought it was very interesting. It was sort of like Moses also who resists right. at first. Right, don't you know that I'm not allowed to go into the king without the king inviting me? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I disagree with Levi Yitzchak here. He foiled Haman's intent, brought retribution on his head, and saved us from the hands of all our oppressors. No one down here did anything. It did anything. But on Hanukkah, the Hasmonean and his sons 
did act and fight God's battles. God only intervened by handing over the many to the few and the strong to the weak. But he did so with human help. There are thus three levels of miracle. The great miracle called day is that of the exodus from Egypt, where nature is changed. Less than that is Purim, which seems partly natural, called night by her master and teacher, a hidden miracle without human aid. And the third level, less than Purim, is that of Hanukkah, a hidden miracle in which there is human participation. Notice he's not talking about the, the oil lasting for eight days. For him, the miracle is the, that the Maccabees defeated. Yeah. Um, just going back to the Purim story, what was the miracle of Purim that Haman um, uh, decide, made a decision to... to uh, so, the, king, the king made a decision to kill Haman? No, the miracle of Purim was that the Jews were spared and uh, Haman's plot was foiled. But then why is that without a human intervention? Because I don't agree with Levi Yitzchak, just so okay. Di- okay. disagree with Levi Yitzchak. Okay. The, point, the reason I brought this teaching is not for that. He, he's doing it because he's, he's spinning on this, which is, look at the next paragraph. That is why, following the fall festival season, Hanukkah comes first, then Purim, then Pesach, because the Talmud says we go up in holiness, not down. We draw forth the lights and grace of Hanukkah, which are not so great. <laughs> Since this was a hidden miracle accomplished with human help, then we rise up to Purim, a hidden miracle in which humans did not act, and then we rise again to the holy state when we can receive the great lights of Pesach, the revealed daytime miracle that is seen by all. That's his, with a schema he wanted to make. I don't actually want to pursue that. I don't agree with him. But I do want to say that the point he's making is that when you, when you examine the, the um, Megillah, as we started doing, there is no mention anywhere in the Megillah of the name of God. Anywhere. The whole story, the whole book has no mention of the name of God. I think I mentioned this. That's why scribes, when they're learning their craft, their first task is to write a Megillah of Esther, because if they make mistakes in it, there's no divine name that has to get altered or, right? So, so scribes learn how to write by writing a Megillah of Esther. It's incredible that there's a book in the Bible that doesn't name um, God. So I'll show you more about that in, in a little bit. Um, and the same in, in the Hanukkah story didn't even make it into the Bible. Right? There's no, the book of Maccabees, which exists in Christian Bibles, didn't even get entered into the Jewish canon. And um, the story is a story of um, salvation, redemption, right? From, in the, in the classic motif of Jewish stories, whether it's Pharaoh or Antiochus or Haman, who wants to annihilate us, and we, they were defeated. So uh, the Exodus story, Pharaoh is defeated by supernatural means. In the, it's like, wow, the, the true, you know, the, the, the truth is evident to everybody. But Hanukkah and Purim, how do you discern um, a divine hand in those events? It's either, I mean, remember, the name of Purim means lottery, right? So, you, so it's clear that you can treat Purim as um, 
a game of chance. Right? Thank God things worked out this way and we can celebrate. On the other hand, because of the Jewish view of history, the sort of in, in, inborn Jewish view of history, when we think in our day of the revival of Hebrew language, the near annihilation of our people by, by uh, the Nazis, and the restoration of our national independence after 1900 years of being in exile, well, I mean, what are we supposed to say about that? You know, and that's not giving a final answer, that's just remaining open to the wonder of it, if you know what I'm saying. It's like, I'm not here to proclaim, I see God's hand working in human history. It's like, on the other hand, um, I can't explain it, right? I can't explain why we're, what we're doing, why we're still here. Uh, and uh, so I'm happy to, uh, I'm, I'm happy to dwell in that wonder, that mystery. Um, and when you read the Purim story, you can read it as, I think it should be read, as a farce, but the rabbis also want to read it as a way that uh, the faith of Mordechai and Esther and the Jews was even greater than the faith of the children of Israel who witnessed God's miracles because they were willing to trust in spite of God's presence seeming hidden in the events. What does it mean to trust? They were willing to keep being Jews, you know, to pursue, uh, to, to, to live with hope, to, you know, I think Martin Luther King is the best example of that for our generation, um, who would say over and over again, this, what his faith was, that, that the universe is on the side of justice, um, and that the oppressed, the oppressors will not stand forever, and they, you know, it's this, this is the theme of Judaism. So uh, Purim and Hanukkah are considered to be hidden miracles. Um, let's read on and just see what else. A very quick question. Yeah. The Purim Megillah is different from the Book of Maccabees. Yes, the, Purim, the story of Esther made it into the canon. Okay, but not the Book of Maccabees. The Book of Maccabees, which recounts the, uh, the, the, revolt. the revolt against the, 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 the Syrian Empire, uh, exists only in Greek. It never, uh, it's part of a section of the Christian Bible called the uh, Intertestamental Literature, or the Apocrypha, uh, and uh, was not included in the Hebrew canon. Do we know if it was written in Greek originally? Was ever in Hebrew? Um, uh, it may have been written in Greek originally, but it may have been written in Hebrew or Aramaic originally. Uh, uh, but it, so we're not not sure, not sure. Um, so now let's see what uh, Levi Yitzchak wants to say about this. If a person has no faith, this this is where he's going. If a person has no faith, God forbid, in hidden miracles, but thinks that the sun simply rises every day, and the moon each night, that at night he sleeps and wakes by day, or that whoever does much business will get rich, or that one who travels far will profit or that medicine aids the sick, 
Such a person sees all this as just ordinary. But when he sees the hidden miracles that the Creator has wrought, placing the strong in the hands of the weak, or the fall of Haman, or even more so the revealed miracles, he will come to see that there is nothing ordinary about the way the world works. It is God who releases the bound and raises up the fallen, who rolls away light before darkness, creating both light and dark. It is God who brings healing to the sick. That is why the mitzvah is to be performed between sunset and the time when feet disappear from the marketplace. The setting sun refers to the hidden miracles, those that are not so easily seen. Until the feet, f- feet disappears from the marketplace, you have to contemplate the Hanukkah candles until you overcome your sense that the world is conducted by the ordinary force of nature. So regel means feet, hergel means habitual, because regel is like also a beat in Hebrew. Uh, such an idea comes to you from forces that lurk without the evil urge, the marketplace. When you kindle Hanukkah lights, this thought disappears from you and you no longer see the world as ordinary. In this way, you come to the faith that the hidden miracle is not merely natural, but that God is constantly recreating the world in every hour and moment. Sometimes he recreates the natural order set into motion in the six days of creation, and sometimes he changes something, like a revealed miracle. But once you accept that there are hidden miracles, you realize that all is constantly being recreated even the established natural order. Isn't that beautiful? So he's not teaching us science here. He's teaching us how to refill our eyes with wonder again, right? And I just really like this teaching, um, that how can we look at anything, anybody, any, and not wonder? How can we treat it as habitual? And this is classic spiritual teaching, right? Uh, that's what Levi Yitzchak is doing for his chassidim. He wants them to be awake to the miracle of being alive. And this is his way of saying it. Uh, this was a Hanukkah teaching that he gave once. But uh, for, again, for, for, to, for him, Hanukkah and Purim are in the same category. I wanted to share that with you. Did anybody want to? Yeah. You know, it also says that every species that's existing which sees differently. Some of them might see UV, all have that miracle in them. We can recognize it even though they may not have the ability to see it. Nomi is, uh, my daughter is taking oceanography as a, a class this year. She's in 10th grade. And they've been studying octopus, mm. oct- octopi. That's so smart. Oh my God. Yes. I'm learning all about octop- octopuses. <laughs> octopi. Well, and we just don't know anything about them because their way of perceiving is they feel, they, they, they perceive through their everything. Mm-hmm. Their brains are in their arms. Mm-hmm. Tentacles. In their tentacles, yeah. The whole thing is like mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a great book written specifically about... Octopus. I think she's reading that book. Maybe she is, because it was fairly recent. Yes, she's reading that yeah, book, and I want to read it. It's fascinating. I want to read it. So, but that's one example out of 50 million right, of who's perceiving, how are they perceiving, what the hell is going on here, what is this sentient universe that we're part of, the whole thing just blows your mind, 
And uh, that's what Levi Yitzchak wants his Hasidim to remember. Yeah. So you're saying that at some point the rabbis said the age of uh, revealed miracles or whatever is over. Mm -hmm. is, there, is there anything actually writings about that? Or is it it's, a, a, it's a common understanding of the Talmudic rabbis that the revealed miracles, along with the great prophets, were of an earlier time. Imagine, they're not, so the rabbis, remember, are not modern historically based. For them, there's kind of like the golden age. You know how that's the way people think often? There was a golden age of history when God was present in the world, and now we live in an age where you see through a glass darkly. That's where that phrase comes from. You familiar with that phrase? Yeah, it, 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 it refers to um, the idea that the prophets of the Bible saw through a glass clearly, but now we have to perceive through a glass darkly. And so they're not talking historically, but they are understanding in their kind of, in their pre-modern understanding of history that there was a golden age and that we bear that now by remembering it, teaching about it, studying about it. So is this like Rabbi Levy's... Uh, explanation to the people why you don't see miracles anymore? Well, I mean, when I talk about the rabbis, happened. when I talk about Talmudic rabbis, I'm talking about in the early centuries of yeah. the common era. Levi Yitzchak is around the year 1800. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, but even now people say, how come there used to be miracles, no more miracles, you know? Right. Where are the miracles? If you're going he's to... Explaining he's explaining. He's explaining that there are still miracles. But they're not the way they used to be. That's right. Miracles ain't what they used to be. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, Helen, for him and for all pre-modern Jews and for us to reintegrate into ourselves is the idea that when you celebrate a holiday about the Red Sea party, it's party, right? We, you are in the story, not just telling the story. That's what Passover is all about, is that you, you eat the story, you tell the story, you are the story. We are going out of Egypt. So again, in a non-linear understanding of time in a more sort of enchanted understanding of story, uh, the, the miracles um, can be, happen for us again now. But the rabbis also feel like, at the same time, this is, not, this is not logic, at the same time, there's this golden age when Moses lived and revealed, and, and the Torah was revealed to us, and we don't live in such a charmed time anymore. But, but it just occurs to me now that the Christian theology still sees revealed miracles. I mean, they're making saints. Yes. Because they're seeing people doing That's things. That's right. And they're seeing that this is a miracle. That's right. Miracle. That's right. Whereas, whereas I would say the classic Jewish tradition, you know, there's a new prayer in the prayer book since Israel was founded, the modern state of Israel. And it said, the prayer for Israel says, calls it in religious language in our prayer book, Reshit Tzmichat Ke'ulatenu, the beginning of the Tzmichat, the, the, um, the, what's it called when a plant, sprouting, the beginning of the sprouting of our ultimate redemption. So uh, um, there's a hint that we are also seeing miracles, but no, they won't say it in the same way. They won't say it out loud because the, you know, this goes back to our Judaism and Christianity class. Yeah. The, the Judaism took a course that, that, that those overt miracles ended, but that there are still hidden miracles. But the hidden miracles are through human action, 
through history, and it's our job to discern them and celebrate them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. But the Christians... The, the Christians are still can, celebrating miracles. Discern. That's right. They say they can discern. Yeah, well, the Catholic Church, the Catholic yeah, uh, Church. Okay, right. Yeah, the Catholic Church. Right, right, the Catholic Church. And there are Jews who say, oh yeah, um, and even their rabbis will say, that's what God did to you to punish what you just did. So there is that kind of a thing. Or Oh, absolutely. No, what I'm saying is even religious Jews who are Zionist see the founding of Israel as God's hand in history, but it's not an overt hand. Do you understand the distinction? They see God's hand in history, no question about it. But it's not an overt hand. It's a concealed hand through human history, and that's how they read Purim and Hanukkah also. So that's, that's, that's the point. God didn't appear. There's no appearance. Right. And God said too. None of that happens. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I think about the parting of the Red Sea, okay, something like that could only be done by God, whereas the other miracles, you know, the hidden ones, I guess, you know, it's not so obvious, I guess. Well, the, the issue... The, the sea is the, like, it's a really biggie, you know? Um... The parting of the Red Sea and the plagues. Yeah. And, but yes, the parting of the Red Sea is understood to be the greatest moment because he says in the Torah, even the handmaiden, you know, uh, the, meaning the, the lowest of the social order, right. experienced God's presence there. But, but, but you would argue that that did not necessarily literally happen. No, no, because I'm a, I'm a modern person who doesn't see the possibility of the laws of nature being subverted by some supernatural, above-nature being. So no, I think it's the way we talk about the miraculous and not that it literally happened. Didn't I? Oh, that's the other one, yeah. There's another one of the first hand Of course. Uh, yes, Anne? Did you ever see, I think I saw a program on television which tried to explain how it was scientifically possible for something to happen to the Red Sea. Right. Yes, those so, shows don't interest me. <laughs> because because let's say and oh really and, and let's say that indeed a strong wind and an unusual tide allowed a, a boggy area to become passable, yeah. and they got across that night and. The chariots couldn't get across, and that's how they got out. That's not how the Bible interprets it. So, let's say, but then it becomes a story of the sea parting and us going through on dry ground, and the Pharaoh's army gets drowned, and uh, the story for me is more important than, since I don't believe, so even if, like manna, there, the manna in the wilderness looks like it might be related to some secretions of um, um, resin from a desert plant that leaves this little white flaky sweet stuff that you can eat. It's like, yeah, but the manna wasn't there every morning to, you know, it's like the story is the story, and maybe it has an historical foundation, and that's fine, but it's like, 
I, that's interesting, but it's not. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting, but it's not what. There's something more trying to be communicated here. Not that, you know, that's the way I look at it. Is it how, is how myths suddenly become, may come in. We don't know what happened. Unfortunately, the Christians, their myths are more recent. So we see where they came from. Our myths, we have no idea where they really came from way back. Like the parting of the sea and all that. Well, um... It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. Myths are being created constantly by people. Dreams are myths. Yeah. Okay, but now let's look at Kedushat Levi on Purim. Okay, so now I want you to look. That's the one I just gave you. So now I want you to... It, he's, he's commenting on a line from Esther chapter 9, verse 27. So let's look at Esther chapter 9, verse 27, and you will find that... Um, on page 20. Chapter 9. It's towards the end of the book. Yeah. Verse 27. Okay. Get on the page numbers in my book. Oh, okay. That's okay. I've You'll find it. chapter 9. Oh, yeah, I got it. No, she has the... This is Karen Levine cleaned up... This is Karen Levine's graphic work and she cleaned it up and put page numbers in it and all kinds of things. That's why we and she put a picture on the front. What, what verse number? Twenty seven. But actually let's start at the top. Verse twenty. Is that what yours has too? Yes. Okay. Start at the top of the page where it says chapter nine continued. Now Mordechai recorded these events and sent letters to all and the Hebrew word is Sfarim. It says letters, but the Hebrew word is Sfarim, Sefer, which means scroll, right? To all the Jews living throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerosh, near and far, instructing them to obligate themselves to celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, like the days upon which the Jews were relieved of their enemies, and the month which, month which had been transformed for them from one of sorrow to joy, from mourning to festivity. They were to make them days of feasting, rejoicing, sending food portions one to another, and giving gifts to the poor. That's how we celebrate today. And the Jews accepted as an obligation that which they had begun to observe and that which Mordechai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamdata, the Agagite, persecutor of all the Jews, plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and he cast a poor, which is a lot, to shatter them and destroy them. But when she came to the king, the king said and ordered letters to be written to the effect that Haman's evil plot against the Jews be returned upon his own head, and he and his sons were hanged upon the gallows. For this did they call these days Purim, after the poor, because all of the events of this letter of all the events of this letter, which explains what happened to them and why they saw fit to establish the holiday. And the word for letter is, uh, let me see in verse 26, uh, Egeret, yeah, okay. And then it says, the Jews established and accepted upon themselves and upon their descendants and upon all who might convert to their faith to annually celebrate these two days in the manner described here on their proper dates never to be abolished. 
Um, every year and throughout the generations. And in verse 27, where it says, the Jews fulfilled and accepted or established and accepted, the Hebrew is, Kiyamu v'kiblu hayehudim. They accepted and received upon themselves. Okay, that's the verse that Levi Yitzchak wants to talk about. Any questions uh, before we turn to the text? What's the two days? Oh, well, there's the one day of Purim, uh, that, and then if you live in a walled city, there's called Shushan Purim. There's two days of Purim. So let's see what Levi Yitzchak wants to say about this. <coughs> Our sages learned from the words fulfilled and accepted that Israel re-accepted the Torah during the reign of Ahasuerus. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> say that. They, what did they accept here? The scroll. The, 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 the scroll that described to them how to celebrate Purim. But the rabbis are very interested in this because the language, is the same kind of legalese that when they're at Mount Sinai and they say, we will obey and we will do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what it doesn't say here, I looked up the biblical reference, um, is that have you ever heard the te- the, the, in, 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 in the, the, the Talmudic reference? It says that the people stood at the foot of the mountain, Tachat Hahar in Exodus. But Tachat also means, as in Tuchus, um, underneath, below. So it, they, they can, the rabbis go to town on this. They say, the people stood under the mountain. That is to say, that God held the mountain over their heads and said, accept this covenant or else. I'm going to drop this mountain on your head. Yes. What? Stephen Colbert does in February has this huge furry hat that's on wires. And when he, when he, goes, and he makes pronouncements under it. And he goes all the way up on the scaffolding, and then they lower the hat on his head, and then he can make his pronouncements. That is so funny. It's great. So um, the rabbis are very curious why the children of Israel say we'll do it at the mountain, right? Because it's like terrifying, and it's all demands, and like what's in it for us, you know? And uh, the rabbis are really clear, like. Why did we take this on? <laughs> you know, do not underestimate the sense of self-awareness and irony that the rabbis possess about the particular Jewish lot that we find ourselves in. Well, there, there's another midrash I think you have said where God offered it first to all the other nations of the world and they said no. No, that's right. And then the modern joke version of that, they said no, and the Jews said, well, um, how much is it? And God says... <laughs> It's free. And they say, we'll take 10. <laughs> That's another joke. Um, so, but yes, the Talmudic the, Midrash the, the is that God goes to the Ishmaelites and he says, he says, what's it say? It says, do not steal. Sorry, we make our living as highwaymen. And then they go to the next, uh, you know, do not commit adultery. And they say, sorry, we have big harems. And then finally it comes to the Jews and they say, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. And that's... Uh, That's another one. 
That's another one, right. Um, so, the point is, is that the rabbis see the covenant as, at Sinai as being a, um, a covenant that was, in a way, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Coerced. Um, that we didn't really have a choice. We were escaped slaves, we're at the mountain, and the big, the, the big redeemer says, now you have to do this, and it's like, oh, okay. Um, and so they have, really a, they have a really ambivalent sense of it, and they use that here. Let me show you. But the Talmud uses this same verse, fulfilled and accepted, in the book of Esther, to prove that the book of Esther was composed in the Holy Spirit. Uh, these two views seem interconnected. We'll get to what that means. Rashi, on this passage in Shabbat, meaning the Talmudic tractate of Shabbat, says that Israel re-accepted the Torah here in the book of Esther due to loving the miracle. But why should this miracle of Mordechai and Esther have been more beloved to them than all the others? Hadn't they already seen the ten plagues and the splitting of the sea and lots more during the Exodus? Then Levi Yitzhak says, there are two types of miracles, and he's back to his theme, the revealed and the hidden. A hidden miracle is the sort that took place for Mordechai and Esther, in which the forces of nature went on undisturbed. The miraculous took place within the realm of nature. Our teacher, the Holy Lamp, Rav Dov Bear, taught that she was named Esther because of hester, which means hiddenness the hiding of the miracle within nature. So, this line, that the, that the Jews took the Sefer that Mordechai and Esther had written and accepted it and fulfilled it, for the rabbis is that this time, the Jews chose the Torah in the context of no divine, obvious divine uh, compulsion or intervention. In other words, it was them saying, we're in. Um, it's a different kind of miracle to be able to discern within the natural order, the hand of God. It's a much more subtle um, uh, faith, requires a different kind of faith and trust. And so the rabbis want to point out that you could think of the Jewish people as a maturing people because Purim is one of the last books in the Bible and that the children of Israel who, who said, who took, the authority said do it and they said we do it is now finally matched by the Jews who take the initiative themselves who don't wait for the divine hand uh, who take the action necessary in order to, be, to fulfill the covenant does that make sense, everybody? Yes. It's pretty cool, I thought. Um, they see it as a, develop, a developmental uh, uh, growth, where instead of coercion and uh, power over, it's the Jews in choosing for themselves. I really like that teaching. And the way they do it is because they've reached the point where they're willing to acknowledge that there are miracles that aren't obvious that where the cause isn't self-evident, and yet we're going to align ourselves up with that. Um, now we can understand why this miracle was so great that their love allowed them to accept the Torah. So Levi Yitzchak is saying that the hidden miracle of Purim 
is in some funny way a greater miracle. Uh, um, which of course is it's homiletic. He's not he's not telling us to rank them. He's giving us a teaching. Yeah. What happens to you in your time has to be the greater miracle. Because right. it's happening to you. That's right. That's right. Do you, do you say we live in a time uh, well oh was that Paul Simon's song? This is a time of uh, miracles and oh, wonders. Oh, miracles and wonders. Miracles and wonders. So yes, when is there when is there a greater time to 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 both discern the divine hand and to declare your trust in the unfolding of the universe than in your lifetime, right? Yes. So you can see this like when people. Uh, when they've been married a certain number of years, some people want to reaffirm their marriage vows. It's sort of like when they did it when they were young and got married, maybe they didn't quite know what they were getting into. Understand what they were getting into. And now, uh, 60 years later, they want to re... Yes, we, we, we see that it was worth it. it was, we Not only do we see that it was that. worth it, but now we're choosing it knowing... What? Knowing what it really is, right? I think that's a great analogy, actually, because what, because the traditional covenant is understood as a marriage with God that we are in a we are, have chosen to commit ourselves to uh, be in committed relationship with life unfolding, and and at the beginning it's like, okay, sure, and or. Yeah, who knows? You can't know. No, but can't then know. later, when you know, and then you're ready to reaffirm your vows. I think that is a perfect. I think that's the. I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, let's see what else he says. Now we can understand why this miracle was so great that their love allowed them to accept the Torah. It took place within nature, where God's kingship is hidden. He's acknowledging that when you look around at the world, um, we're going on faith a lot of, most of the time. They, that made it all the greater. And then he goes on with this analogy. It is no great surprise when the king comes along with a vast army and wins the battle. But what if the king is alone in the forest without either weapons or troops and wins by his courage alone, like Esther? Or imagine the fear and submission that overwhelm you when you come into the king's palace and see all his grandeur. But suppose you met the same king alone in the forest, without any soldiers and dressed like an ordinary person, yet you were still overcome by fear and shame. Wouldn't fear and shame for him as a positive, like, because you're in the presence not just of a king, but, you know, I am, I am dust and ashes before you. Um, wouldn't that be a much greater wonder? The Blessed Holy One can transform nature and make his heavenly kingdom appear. The one who created everything can change things as well. That's Levi Yitzchak's faith. That is not so great a miracle as when God works through nature with his kingship hidden and yet does wonders. That was what happened at the time of Mordechai and Esther and it was so wondrous that it caused Israel to re-accept God's Torah. Isn't that beautiful? <sighs> yeah. Um, I, they, I, don't, I don't understand we accept because I, um, I thought they were just introducing a new element to the Torah. No, in this teaching, he's going beyond 
the, the literal instructions here, which is that these are instructions to celebrate Purim. To, he's, he's just following the Talmud and just taking this phrase out of context, fulfilled and accepted, which is, is the kind of language of, uh, the traditional language of covenanting. Um, uh, and so this is now out of context and in the context of that not only did they accept Purim, but they reaccepted their relationship with God in it entirety. Would, it would it be more accurate to say reaffirmed rather than reaccepted? Because they had yes. always accepted. Yes, yes, reaffirmed. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's nice. Nicely put. Good. Yeah, they reaffirmed from a different place, from uh, a place, as Helen was saying, where, uh, uh, where they, when they got married and were assuming that we were going to be happy forever and that love conquers all. Um, and now, 60 years later, they're looking at each other and say, well, it's a lot more obscure than that, but we still believe that this is worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. It, isn't it also a kind of uh, reaffirming that I am a vessel of this working through me? I'm Absolutely. In this, in this way? Sure. Yeah, so I could we can read this in all of yeah. these ways. This is a yes and here. Yeah. That it's, it's, and, and that seems to be a more mature choice than just accepting this early, early on. There's still faith involved, but it's, it's stepping into something. It's incarnating into something. It's more... God is not revealed embodied. in the Purim story. We have to do it ourselves. Okay, yes, because we, we, we can now recognize that, that that's possible. In addition to Purim's story being a farce, it's also a story where there's a hero, and it's a human hero, and uh, where uh, what might seem like a lottery to Haman, whose faithlessness is that right. life's a lottery, right. and... Uh, right. It, it, to the to Mordechai and Esther, is it, they the, we it. have they get something about their hand then being the. They can be in the world with it, however it manifests itself. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, I'm rap, I'm still I'm playing with this. Gail. Oh, you want to say more, Susan? Yeah, it's something about in our what we're born with in our DNA. It's like it's like a, a final yes. I get that. That's my purpose. That's what I'm going to do. It's like choosing to incarnate that purpose. Now I know more of what it is, who I am, what I carry, and what is, you know, what's my purpose in the world. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the Joseph story, where, where there is no overt hand of God in the Joseph story. The whole Joseph story, his brother's throw him in a pit, they sell him a slave, and he spends in prison down there, he rises up to the top of Pharaoh's... Uh, palace, he then is able to save his family, and when they say to him, um, uh, uh, please don't kill us, he says, no, somehow God's hand was in all of this, because I am now in a position where I can save your lives. And so Joseph did not have to interpret his life experience that way. And my own feeling is that, and he interpreted it in such a way that allowed him to give up resentment, to give up um, his grudges, to accept what had happened, 
to make the most of it in the present. So my point is, whenever I teach the Joseph story, is that whether there is a guiding divine hand or not, as it were, if we act like there is, we will lead lives of purpose and meaning. Do you you follow what I'm saying? If we act as though, when we look at everything that happened in our life, we can either say, well, that was a crapshoot, or we can say, that was some kind of crapshoot, but somehow I'm here for a reason, and there's a purpose for me being in this situation at this moment. Whether that's objectively, whatever objective means, (laughs) objectively true, or whether it's our own interpretation of events, Faith is the act of interpreting it as though it has inherent purpose and meaning. That allows us to keep moving forward in our lives um, without a sense of randomness and purposelessness. Um, And so I think that's the level that... So again, that's why King inspires me, Martin Luther King, because he said, no, 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 no. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. No, get on this train. This is the right train to be on. Is is that objectively true? You can look at history and make either argument, right? You can make the argument that tyrants always finally fall in this battle between good and evil, or you can make the argument that, you know, we're like bugs getting smashed by random violence, you know. Uh, And I choose... I choose an argument that affirms that uh, meaning and purpose in our existence. Okay. Uh, Gail, you've been waiting to speak. Yeah, so I mean, this is a very complex. Very complex. Question. Very complex. Yeah. So it seems to me that for people who are on a spiritual path, that their, exp- their, their faith and often their inner experience, their faith is there to align with the will of God. Right and sort of submit even, but align with. And that generally goes in the direction, pretty much all traditions, of love and compassion and equity and all of that. Right. And that's easy to fit into this idea of hidden miracle, in which we're vessels, right. you know? Whether, whether there's only God or God's somehow separate, but we're vessels. Right. But then there's the other piece of it that if you really accept the image of hidden miracles, then you can be a vessel without knowing it and while doing something truly horrible. I mean, I just, you know, there's a standard, one of the explanations of the Holocaust is it led to the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have happened without the Holocaust, which is true as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. So were all of the Nazis, the whole Nazi movement, <laughs> you can go there. You can go there. But, but you can and also go in time. You, time kind of stretches it out to see a bigger picture of it. But the bigger picture doesn't change the fact. No, that still that, that, I mean, with King, those fire hoses turned on on those right. school kids, on the demonstrating kids. Right. Right, and the dogs on national television moved the civil rights movement into a wholly different place, as videos are doing now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. right. But the people who were doing those actions... Are not choosing to be interesting if in the cosmic so, boardroom they chose yeah, to do I, that. Right. So, to make the whole story. It's like the Mahab- that's what I'm Mahabharata. Yeah, that's 
Yeah, yeah. So, and then, so we can't ignore. We don't know that. Right, and we can't ignore. It's two very different things. Yes, I'm so, so reluctant to make pronouncements like that because uh, I'm dealing with human lives, you know, and at the same time, I have the same perception as you um, that uh, there there are giant forces at work that exceed our individual existence and that being a martyr can have a transformative effect on the changes that, that happen subsequently, and it's very complicated. That's why I just, I just try to be very humble about whenever yeah, we're, we're talking about you are. I'm just like, I understand. And I, Carol and Stu, I want to add one other thought, which is that, um, um, I forgot. Okay, Stu? <laughs> Two things. One is uh, King... Well, I remember what I wanted to say. King, May I? King, yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, for me, it's much, it's, it's much clearer rather than trying to discern from my unbelievably limited vantage point as an individual living in a single place at a certain time on history, you know, those who kind of, to make pronouncements about it is interesting, but for me to understand that Moses tells us that God has told us to choose life, that I can totally get behind, and that in this astonishingly sentient universe, that I'm supposed to be on the side of greater awareness and sentience and growing, you know, that that all for me is my faith. That and you're on a path. I mean, you're, I'm on that path, right? I'm not on the path. I try not. I don't want to be on the path of death. I want to be on the path of life. Uh, of uh, not a, and and that doesn't guarantee that I'm not going to get smashed, right? I want to say one other thing before yeah. Stu that which is also that even if one has some of the sense of a cosmic dance, in this world, when one behaves badly, mm. there are consequences and should be. That's right. It, 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 true. In this world, in this, in this realm, we don't say, well, you know, you were carrying out, you were doing something, you know, right. meaningful. Uh-uh. Right. The moral, the moral equations, uh, we are, the, in Judaism, we are commanded to fulfill the those moral imperatives here, regardless of what the biggest cosmic picture is. Yeah. yeah two things. One is um, King. King actually had his burning bush. In that, when the stone was thrown through. His yes, there's this famous piece from King's diary that we like to read. That he was at a real low ebb, and he had a moment when he felt God's presence would be with him saying, I will be with you. And it wasn't guaranteeing that he'll come out alive, but nope, he did it. that I will be with you. And that is the other key here, is that what we're, what we're, what we're offered is presence, and it might company. Been, he might have been the, the spark, was the spark that made such a big difference among the rest of the country, too. His, his eloquent speeches and his doing this thing. But the other thing I wanted to ask is this. It says, the Jews established and accepted yeah, and in the uh, in the Sinai, they did and they obeyed. Right, different and, words. But mm-hmm. it's similar, though, isn't it? Yeah, they they fulfilled or they established. Fulfilled it, or accepted, and or later they accepted it for what it meant. And the Jews, that's the point. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. The reason they like this phrase, I hadn't quite wrapped my mind around that, and Sue just helped me, is that it says in the Torah, "Na'asev nishma." We will do and we will listen. And the rabbis say, how could they just say they would do it? 
before they knew what it was. Yeah. And that was a statement of their faith. Right. And here it says they fulfilled and accepted, and it's a similar, they didn't accept and fulfill. They fulfilled it, and then they said, and we're in. So yes, they, they jumped at the chance. Thank you for pointing that out. Who else had their hand up? Carol. Experienced one of those moments the other uh, the other morning when Gabe did his Torah reading. So Gabe Dresdell, at age twenty three, decided to revisit his half, his his Torah reading for his bar mitzvah ten years ago. And it makes me think about your second bar mitzvah coming up, and when Jerome did his. Um, I love the miracles being being placed in human stories. Just little pieces of human lives. Because in those moments, I don't have to think cosmically. In those moments, I just, I just sat there and listened to that young man be blown away by what he had said. He read, what, he read his bar mitzvah speech from when he was 13 which was just as extraordinary as anything he could have written now, and then commented on it, on it as well. Just, just having that growth in front of me, just having, having that happen in community, mm -hmm. that, you know, um, remembering like where I stood in the room when he, when he was 13, and, and became a bar for the first one in this in this building. All that kind of stuff just drops in for me all this that we're talking about. I don't need to understand anymore. I have I have this incredible feeling of it's right. And it's God, and it's and it and it's happening, and it's happening right now to me. And then I can think about, you know, I can think about the more theoretical things, but I'm thinking about them from a place, a, a, a solid place, I think, in me. Until it becomes not so solid, and I have to wait till the next, right, the next step. <laughs> right, right. Nicely put, Helen. So then, if we can see how. We can feel at moments that this divine presence. It's scary to think that people who are going out with a suicide vest feel it too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Somehow. Well, I think that you need the. Um, I think people can convince themselves of anything, and one of the reasons I remain, in, you know, committed to the Jewish tradition is because it says choose life, and choose good. And Jews have done that too, hmm? right? Jews have done that. Jews too. are doing it too. So, so they can convince themselves of anything. Mm -hmm. Isn't it amazing? Well, I think that's what scary. It's say. scary. Yes, that's scary. the danger You're... in this whole construct that we've been talking about of, of seeing your place in the universe <laughs> as some kind of divine. Right. Because anybody, I mean, there's Ted Cruz's father. Oh boy. You know who's. <laughs> Really, piece of work. Creepy. And, and Scary. you know, wants to kill all gays and lesbians and sees it as a divine calling. So, you know, we just have to be cautious of this. Yes. Because 
Yes, and I think I think we've been holding that caution in the way we've been talking about it, but I, it can't be stated enough times. Gail? This is going to sound theoretical, but none of what I say is theoretical. Yeah, 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 go on. Go on. So I was just, I'm reading a book by Mike Homans on Way Into Prayer. Yeah, he edited it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very nice book. Yeah, and one of the lines I just read this morning was he was commenting on the change in the reform sidor, and I think and we have the same. It's part of the morning prayer on um, God the baker of, I don't know exactly, but of light and dark and of, I want to say, good. And, and the original is an evil. No, this isn't the reform or the reconstruction. This is a change the rabbis made. 2,000 right, years okay. ago. To get rid of the evil? Isaiah says... It's God, right, I'm sorry, it's in Isaiah. That's a quote from Isaiah. Right. Isaiah says, says who, makes, uh, who creates light and darkness, who creates... Uh, um, who makes peace and evil. And in our Amidah, in the second one, we have God who creates both life and... creator of life and death. Right. So... If you're truly monotheistic, yeah. which we're supposed to be, then everything comes from God, including yes. what the suicide bomber is picking up. I mean, it, it could be. It leaves us with a... We're told in our tradition, again, you don't listen to any of that. You choose life. That's our tradition. But the nature of where it's coming from, I don't know. Yeah. Right, right. So, again, the position of human moral systems are very changeable depending on who you're hanging out with and um, uh, I I am not willing to concede the field to the field I'm not willing to just say well then therefore I'm not going to argue that there's a moral law in the universe mm-hmm. that our tradition reveals right. because just because you say that death is good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's a human battle. A human battle for what is the ascendant moral code. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing I want to say about it is that, and I've said this for years, is that it all depends on your perspective. Right. From the perspective of Oh. I'll turn it off in a sec. I just can't do it while it's doing Okay. From the perspective of someone who's having a sublime, universal experience, it's all one. And the life and the death and the cruelty and the goodness are somehow, it, it's truly all one. From the perspective of me living in this earth plane, from out of my eyes, I am commanded to, uh, to, for, for, to fulfill a moral purpose in life. Yes. And they are both true. It's true. It See, it's not either or. The question, it's, it's all about whether you're, you know, from a distance, the world looks blue and green. And, you know, but down here, it, that's actually a good song. You should listen to it again. I was listening to it the other day. Julie Gold wrote it. She's this Jewish woman from New Jersey. Um, uh, but it all depends on our perspective, and one does not negate the other perspective. Right. Yeah. Yes? Um, <clears throat> so we've been talking about um, um, 
following a, a moral path. We've been talking about following life and not following death. Yeah. But what about the randomness? And, and, and you said earlier, if you believe that, then you have to believe that there isn't just random things happening. But, but I'll, I'll tell you something that's haunted me all my life. Yeah. Um, I had an arrangement to meet a friend. Um, we were planning to meet at a certain point in time. On her way to meet me, she was in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's completely random, yeah. right? I mean, I didn't, certainly didn't have a moral... Her child died as a result. Mm -hmm. uh, her two-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I still am haunted by that feeling, like, what, what was my role in that? Mm -hmm. What is my role? Mm. What, where are we in these random mm -hmm. um, uh, places that we... This is not a question of my not wanting life. Right. Um, or not believing in that. Right. But if you believe in that, then where does that fit in? The random parts. If you say, I'm following a moral code, I'm doing what I think is right, and then it, in, in some way you cause someone's death. Or are part Cause. Well, cause in the sense that if she hadn't been coming to meet me, wow. she wouldn't be on that road. Wow. Oh, that's, that's wow, you're reading that so interestingly yeah. that you're responsible for this. Not directly responsible. Not a part. There's a part. To it. Right. I, I wow. Played, I played a role yeah. in where she it. was at that point. You played a role, right, right, yeah, right, like right. Yeah, a movie role. Yeah. At yeah. that point in time, she would not have been in that place at wow. that point in time. Right? Wow. So how do I understand that? Right. Right. Uh, you don't. Until such a time until such a time that may come when looking back on it, you you sense a pattern to the tapestry and that you know, but now it's it's so what are things that are both true? One thing that's true is that, is that all kinds of shit happens. And I mean, if the polar ice caps are actually melting, then shit we've never seen before is about to happen. Um, and that's true. And it's true that I have this feeling at times in my life of a mysterious interconnectedness of events that leads me to a certain moment or certain decision. And there's, they're both true. Um, I agree with that, that things are interconnected, but when you are in, when, when your, your presence in this world is, is inadvertently causing something that you hadn't meant to cause, it, it's just because... It is all the time. Every minute, yeah. You're just, you're every, with the, everything. The word cause is kind of, you know, has a lot of fire to it. But it, it's, I'm part of that. I'm in it. I'm, exactly. It, yeah. is, it, is, it is in my world. It is in my field. So, all of that. Right. Yeah. So, but, but then you see it as random. Because you're just going like this. Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily buy into the random. I don't know if I do or not. But I see it as a, something that I have to God wrestle with. And that struggle is something that is part of my, in, you know, my, my work here on the planet, whatever that is. And allowing me to, the, the vulnerability to feel helpless 
and so opened up by it and bad guilt, whatever the feelings are, the feelings to me are so important to have but not to act on and to beat myself up or to blame something else or, but just to be with it, that's part of life as well. And there's something about the, the, the eventual acceptance that yes, that too, just makes my container bigger. And that doesn't make it easier, it doesn't make it nice, it doesn't make it pleasant. Just that, as you say, the, the purpose of Purim after the Messiah comes is to remember that Amalek is gone, right? Until then, there's Amalek. It's something we live with. And there's, de there's degrees of, to me, there's degrees of it. I think each of us shares your perplexity. Um, and uh, we're, we're here to, you know, keep, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Oh, uh, yeah? Yeah, I just want to say that uh, this winter, something similar happened. And I found out after a person who was supposed to meet us, I heard didn't come because they were in an accident. Really? It wasn't so tragic as that one. Immediately, I want to know what time it happened, the accident. And I found out that it happened at a time she couldn't have been coming to meet me. She no. had the accident a few hours before that, going somewhere else. And I was relieved, as though I had something to do with that. Right, that you could have in some way. Had. But I mean, it was so, then I afterwards, this is ridiculous. Right. Why do I feel so happy that she wasn't coming to see me, she was going to the beauty ball. You know? <laughs> right, right. And then that's what she was doing. Starts in the beauty and, and, you know, it's like putting yourself in there, like you have nothing to do with any of those things, sort of. Like you're filtering everything through yourself. Those, you were, you know, why should I be relieved about that? All right, so that's why we're in the realm of paradox. Again. The, the Simcha Bonham, another a, a contemporary of Levi Yitzchak, coined the very famous teaching now that everyone should walk with a note in each pocket. And on one note it says, for me the world was created. In other words, I'm the center of the action here. And the other is, I am dust and ashes. And wisdom is knowing when to pull the, which note out of which pocket. <laughs> So, so sometimes you want to acknowledge the fact that you're really another atom careening around the universe. And sometimes you need to look at what's happening and saying, this is about me and I need to respond. Right? And that's, so this perspective doesn't negate this perspective. It's about that it's, they're both in each pocket. And, and so, if you only have one note that says, for me the world was created, you're going to become a self-centered idiot because you're going to think that you're responsible for everything that happens in the universe. Right. If you only have this note, I am dust and ashes, you'll become a, um, what's the word for someone who... Uh, doormat. No, 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 not at all, not a doormat. No. Dust and ashes isn't a doormat. Oh, no. Dust and ashes is that I don't have, is that... I don't have, I have no control. I have no control, no responsibility, and... Um, uh, Everything's random. Everything's random. Yeah. So when are you feeling overburdened by guilt when you need to pull this note out and say, you know, my mom once, uh, uh, I called her up because I, a friend of mine was very mad at me and 
the, the friendship, I, he was asking me to do something to make amends that I didn't feel I merited, that my, my behavior merited. It's like, what are you talking about? It's like, this happened and this happened. Let's just get together and talk. And he said, no, you owe me X and Y. I called my mom up and I said, this is terrible. What should I do? Should I like suck it up? And I don't, really don't feel like I should. And she said to me, some friendships last and some don't. And I went, oh. Because I was, I'm so hyper-responsible. So, so, you know, it's like, whatever happened must be my fault. You know? And, but then there are other times when I need to own up and say, the only way I'm going to feel empowered here is by acting as if my actions matter. And that's, that's what I'm talking about. So the, the answer is a paradoxical answer. And sometimes it's very difficult to know. Wisdom, Simcha no. Bonham says, is knowing which note to, to make sure you look at at that moment. Or as Sam Keane said in a uh, book that I read in college, he said he used to swim in the ocean at a out spit of land and this was one of one of those life lessons I got when I was 19 reading his book it was called the book's called Apology for Wonder uh, which is a beautiful title and he said that there was a place where the uh, outgoing tide would just you could not fight it and if you're swimming in the out and you had to ride it until you're out beyond the point and then you could swim back to shore and he said, I learned that wisdom is knowing when you have to swim against the current and when you need to let it carry you. And it's the same kind of idea, uh, Stu. You know, it, it, I had this other thing that um, the miracle is that we live to be at such and such an age. It doesn't mean that everything we're going to do, I remember we were climbing up to go to the top of Mount Massive in, in the um, uh, Rockies near, near Denver, Boulder. And it was a thunderstorm. And what we did was we went under this rock not far from it. And that's the wrong thing to do. Oh. But statistically, it turned out to be not a problem. And everything we do has a bit of statistics in it. Now, Martin Luther King and also the guy from India, uh, Gandhi. Oh, him. The guy. <laughs> 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 Uh, she said, it's a good movie title, The Guy from India. <laughs> Had they done it at a different time, they would have been wiped out, and that would have been the end of it. So that's where some of the wisdom might come, or this is the time to be right. But there's a randomness that happens all the time. The fact that I'm 82, and that, um, what's his name, uh, Oliver Sacks is not here, he was also 82, that's the miracle that we have, that we're alive, and 30 years ago, if I was 82, I'd be one of the older, older cripples that were going around. So we have these miracles that happen, but they're not guaranteed, and then sometimes the wisdom is, if you're going to do hang gliding off of a mountain, there are problems. The, the risks, <laughs> in some cases, get much worse. Right, right, so there's the actuarial tables, first of all. Right. I, all of that's true. And so, so it would be almost like, in this instance, it's time to take out the I am dust and ashes uh, note and let it be. That, that it's, just, it, it's just hard to, like you said, it's a paradox that both things... They're both true, both true. Marka? 
Well, I was thinking about, I know I said this kind of desire for revealed miracles, and it seems like that must have been... Give me a sign. Yeah, give me a sign. But then I was also thinking, uh, I I keep thinking about a hidden miracle that, that happened to me where I was swimming off the coast of New Zealand, and I got caught in a riptide. Yeah. And right when I got very fearful, six dolphins came... Underneath me and pushed me back to shore. Wow. (laughs) It really happened. Yes, it really happened. And if that hadn't happened through the dolphins, I mean, it seems that it is an evolution in that the hidden miracle are are they're embodied, they're they teach a respect for for all of life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get more into the Spinoza's ideas of God as as pantheistic as as in 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 everything in everything. And so I think that's sort of the gift of the, and also the, the, the hidden miracle brings you into that space where both, both pockets are being employed. That's right. At the same time, at the same time yeah. whereas the revealed might not, but the hidden gives you that sense both of incredible fragility and being at the, you know, being, being at the, the center, center of things. Yeah. The center of something important yeah. at the same time. The same time. Yes, I think that's religious awareness, mm-hmm. is that you have those feelings at the same time. Yeah. And can I ask you something uh, yeah. about this, because it's such a miraculous story. Yeah. I, mean, I love it. I wish it was my story. <laughs> it, was really uh, it is now. Now it's the story I can tell. Take it, take it. Did you feel, when you were rescued by the dolphins, and once you could catch your breath and were safe, did you think, oh, I've been saved for some purpose? Did that cross your mind? I'm just curious. Uh, it was less about a purpose and more about the connection. Mm-hmm. And, and after that time, I could go and sing underwater and call dolphins to me. Mm-hmm. So it was more just feeling like they, they were they, keeping They opened me, a like door. They, were, they opened a door and they were also sort of hold, they were holding me mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. So wow. it really, it did blow my mind open in that way to, to think that, you know, because there's such a feeling of antagonism and you're with wild animals, or, you know, could it be there's the bad, depressed animals? I mean, are they going to get, you know, and, and then to feel like, this is for me. This is, you know, so it was, it was, it was a great bringer of faith for me. Yeah, because I drove my car off a cliff, not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> and, um, and it flipped and the entire top was smashed in except where I was sitting. And, you know, I got out my dog. This is many, many, many years ago. I'd been thrown out of the back window, so he was okay. And I did think, I mean, my friend showed up and they were like, and I was cursing, because my car was, (laughs) (laughs) oh shit, my car. And they couldn't believe I was alive. And and I was, you know, around 30 when this happened. I remember thinking, oh, I wonder what I'm, I'm supposed to be doing, that I didn't die then. Mm-hmm. I yes. should have died. Yes. Uh-huh. But there must be something that I'm supposed to be here for. Yeah. Right. And many people emerge from life-threatening situations with that renewed sense of what's important and what isn't. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, beautiful. That's the paper, you know, the world is... The world is created for me. Right. And it's like, it's incredibly fragile and, and. It's just a yes and. It's the only way to approach this, in my opinion. 
Carol, and then I want to I want to share something. I just feel the need. Oh, and I want to thank everyone for sharing these personal yeah. things. That's always the best for me. Yeah. Uh, I want to hear what our lives are like. Yeah. I just feel the need to throw in an urban uh, uh, um, illustration. <laughs> um, many years ago, I saw on television a traffic study that had been done of the corner of 72nd Street and Broadway. I was just going to tell a story about 72nd and Broadway. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> if you looked at, they filmed, you know, and then they speeded it up. Yeah. And peop, people, cars, dogs, trucks, everything were perfect. There was no, nobody was bumping into anybody. It certainly looked like they were, and then they would, they would veer off, and you could just see these lines of energy oh, that, that, were, oh, that yeah, was yeah. carrying, <laughs> if you stepped into that intersection, you were being carried by this energy. And Unless that, you're from Idaho or something. <laughs> <laughs> Even then. I don't know. I think a lot of those people are. But that's, that's an image that, and it's not as inspiring to me as the dolphins, but that is an image that I have, that's that I beautiful. have kept that yeah. is an illustration mm -hmm. There's so many of us, and we're all about to bump into each other all the time. And most of the time, we don't. That, that to me, is the miracle. Not, not that, that we get saved sometimes. That's pretty amazing, too. But most of the time, we don't need to get saved because it's working. Yeah. That's astounding. Nicely put. Nicely put. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that also brings us back to 72nd Street. No, 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 I'll tell that, that story. That story is that my mom, who liked, used to like to write things to the Metropolitan Diary, mm. she came up from the 72nd Street station one, one day, uh, and there was like police lines and a parade, and, like, and he, she says to an officer, What's going on, officer? And the officer says, Oh, it's for you, lady. <laughs> <laughs> That's this note. <laughs> it's like that movie, uh, what is it, Independence Day, where he comes to the, the immigrant comes to this country and he arrives on the 4th of July. No, I don't remember by Avalon. 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 Avalon, right. Avalon, yes, Avalon. He comes ashore on the 4th of July and the fireworks are going and he says, my God, what a welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Jose, can you see? You know that one? Oh, right, Jose, can you see? Um, just to put a little bit of a different spin on what you said, I think that that is the saving. I mean, I, I am like, the fact that we don't bump into each other doesn't mean we don't need saving. It means that we are saved and Sometimes I have this sense that it's not never as dramatic as dolphins, but that I'm being saved every minute. Mm -hmm. And that's what the prayer book says. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. So it's like we all need saving that's all the time, miracle. and we get it in one way or another, or we don't. But we well, we get it until, until we, we don't. Until we don't. We don't. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But not, the not getting it doesn't negate the infinite number of times. Not. Yeah. When the flow from carried us along. Well, it's like from the moment you're conceived or even before, that, that save is happening. What a beautiful image. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I want to finish seeing what Leviathan said, and I want to give you one more teaching that I think relates to this. This is so marvelous. Oh. At the very bottom of the page, he says, 
But let us look at this in a more inward way. Isn't that lovely? Let us look at, in Hebrew that is, uh, let's look at the inner, innerness of this ish. First we should note that the term Megillah, which is, means scroll in Hebrew, in Esther, is when God's kingship was hidden within nature, derived from the word Megaleh, which means to reveal. So interestingly, Megillah, which is a scroll, and Megaleh, same letters, so, uh, since God was revealed to be present in the natural world and still to defeat evil. So, the point of that, and I mentioned this earlier, is that Megillat Esther, the scroll of Esther, is also the revelation of the hidden. Because Esther means hidden, and Megillat means revel- the revealing. So that they love this story, and I do too, but the Hasidic masters in particular, because they see the story of Esther as when the hidden hand of divine, of divinity, and now not a literal hand, but the time-lapse photography of 72nd Street and Broadway, right? The dolphins, the, when the drawback, 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 and see the flow of energy everywhere is revealed through Esther's actions, and you see it, we see it. And there was, and then the, the Megillah says, and there was, and for the Jews, there was light and joy and sason um, and um, rejoicing and yikar and preciousness um, because of what had happened. So from the darkness comes this moment when you realize, so I love that. Why then did they come to accept the Torah? They read the Megillah in that first year, and through it they saw clearly God's active presence within the natural, physical realm. They then accepted the Torah out of love. They watched the time-lapse photography, they watched, they saw this, they, and they said, wow, I don't understand it, but it's there. And I love it, and I'm glad I'm part of it. And so the part that I wanted to add to this is this beautiful teaching about Amalek. So we talked about Amalek two weeks ago. Most of you were here. Amalek being the evil uh, energy that, uh, that picks off the weak and the straggler and doesn't have any reverence for life. Um, the, bull, the, the one who bulldozes through, who doesn't see the stream of life and try to swim in it, um, but who thinks that just for me the world was created. In any way you want to explain it. It says, remember Amalek, the Choret Amalek, Asher Korcha Baderach. Now this word Korcha means, I'd say its plainest meaning is who happened upon you. Korcha, who encountered you on the journey. Right? But the rabbis say, Korcha is an interesting word because it also means who chilled you. Chill. Kar is cold. So, who chilled you on the way? And the rabbis go to town with this and say that that's because what they did was they chilled your enthusiasm. Mm. They, 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 do you follow what I'm saying? That the, the enthusiasm of this conversation, that God willing will send us out into the world 
just feeling more connected. You know, that would be, in more traditional terms, having our faith restored or renewed. Right? That e- what evil does is it, it chills us out. It makes us feel like it, it, cools our, it cools our inner fire. I love that teaching. The other teaching related to Korcha, just a minute, too. The other teaching related to Korcha is that happened upon, and now if you recall, I've taught you before that Kara means to call with an olive. Kara with a hay means to happen upon. So the way, the, the way our tradition teaches about this is that Amalek treated all life as random. They, they happen upon things, and then you take advantage of it. Whereas Moses hears the call that within the happenstances of life, something is calling to us. And the faith in that sense is the ability to discern, to sense, to try to track what's meaningful, what's calling to us in the random events that happen to us. A lack of faith is, and that's where the Aleph, remember that famous Aleph that is the voice of God, the silent voice of God, is missing. So Amalek's evil, what they do is they both make us think, they, 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 they encourage a sense of randomness and apathy, as opposed to a sense of purpose and enthusiasm. And that that's the root uh, of what they did to us in the, in the wilderness. I thought that was an amazing teaching. Stu? Yeah, I, two things. I've been reading by this, about this guy, Zeitlin, um, who got killed in the Holocaust. But his comment, and he was a chassid, uh, a very un- unorthodox chassid. Unorthodox, and coming from, I think his mother was a Chabad, and the father was from uh, one of the Baltic states. But anyway, he said, you shouldn't think of evil and good, but it's all a spectrum. From good to evil is an entire spectrum. That's true, too. And that was a very interesting way of looking at it, that it's not evil is different from good, and good could be, oh, you're giving away everything, or you're saving some. So that, that, that kind of brings it... The word evil, of course, has a bad connotation. Well, evil is a moral category. And, and, and when we're speaking about moral categories, evil is an appropriate word. Right, but we do have a spectrum of it. By earning a living, we're working at a job that someone else could have used our job, and that's the sense. It's not evil, but we're filling yes. in. Yes, so I wouldn't even say a spectrum, Stu. I would say a three-dimensional field okay. with, like... A vertical, a horizontal, and a through axis. It's like, because it's way too complicated. Our nat- the way our minds work is we need to schematize things. And that's okay too. But, but then every schema has to finally, finally let it give way to the paradox of, or the innate mixture. Think of the yin yang symbol, you know, where there's a little of this, that, and a little of this and that, no matter what. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, thank you for that marvelous sharing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And next week we're going to start studying Passover. I think we're going to. Uh, I'll, I'll look forward to to, work, to doing that with you. So I did think about because when Karen was here, 
and we talked about, and I was talking about, you know, this bizarre little setup in the book of Esther where Mordecai pimps her out. Was the word. Right, right. And I said it happens all over in the Old Testament. So as soon as I got in my car, I thought immediately of Ruth and Naomi. Right. Naomi does the same thing to Ruth. Right. Go lie at his feet. And, and then he'll think he actually stooped you, and then he'll have to marry. <laughs> right? That's what she says. Uh, that's one reading of that passage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, oh, marvelous. <laughs> 